Now, if you have a Bible with you and want to turn to um, Numbers chapter 16, that's where we'll be this morning, Numbers 16, as we continue our teaching series on overcoming obstacles that help us move forward in faith. Um, and as we go to Numbers 16, and as you're turning there this morning, I'll answer the question that's top of a lot of your mind, and the question is, how am I doing after the 49ers loss um, <laughs> last Sunday in the Super Bowl? And thank you for asking. Um, I have gone through uh, the, the kind of the t classic stages of grief. Sunday night, I was in denial. I thought I'd go to bed and wake up Monday, and that would be the Super Bowl. Um, and then, so Monday I woke up, and indeed they had lost. And so it was just anger. That's the next phase you go through. And you can ask anyone who works with me. I was just mad on Monday. And then Tuesday, I start to drop into bargaining. And then by Wednesday and Thursday, I'm in depression. And I actually get sick a little. So if you hear that in my voice, I was sick earlier this week just going through it. And, and then I finally woke up Friday morning with acceptance and did the thing every sports fan does when their team loses the big game, there's always next year. Um, so that was my journey this week. And in the midst of that journey, in the social media age we live in, you don't just read a news article about the game. You start seeing all the little clips that come out, all the little moments of the game that could have gone different. And you're watching, you're going, if the coach had only done this differently, if the ref had only thrown a flag there, if it had only gone just slightly different in that one spot, and I found myself complaining about the little moments of the game the little things that could have been a bit different, the little things that could have changed the direction of the Super Bowl and made my team win, and I'm complaining and venting and angry. And here's what starts to happen. If you do enough complaining, if you do enough venting, if you do enough grumbling, what will eventually happen is you'll realize that that's not actually doing anything constructive for your life. Uh, like I like to think of complaining and grumbling and venting about these things, kind of like um, this Wednesday was Valentine's Day. Uh, and so on Valentine's Day up in our staff offices, someone laid out this incredible spread of treats and cookies and candies and all of that. And I would love to tell you that I have the discipline to walk by a table like that and not grab some. I do not have the discipline to walk by a table like that, apparently, and not grab some. So throughout the whole day, I'm grabbing little candies, little cookies. And here's the great thing. It's like when it hits your mouth, when you eat it, it tastes so good. It feels so good in the moment. And complaining and grumbling are the same kind of way. When you grumble to someone, when you complain about a coworker or your boss, when you grumble about your friends, when you grumble about your family, when you complain about something in the church or something in the culture or something in this world, it feels good in the moment. But in the same way, it feels good. It's like this. I eat all those cookies and snacks, and that's not actually doing anything constructive for my body. It's not helping me in any way. And the same is true with grumbling and complaining. See, it always feels good in the moment, but it's not actually adding anything to your life. And today, as we go to the story in number 16, I want to start with two basic principles. And the first is this, that grumbling and complaining are not harmless habits. They're not harmless. They're not meaningless. And they're not neutral in your life. When you grumble and complain, whether it be about big things, little things, relational things, business things, colleague things, things about your school, things about your family, they are not harmless habits, but rather grumbling and complaining are spiritual issues. They impact your walk with Jesus and they impact the way you experience the life God has for you and the calling he's given so this morning, what I want us to see clearly is that grumbling and complaining are not these neutral, irrelevant things in our life, but rather a powerful obstacle to us moving forward in the faith and the life God has called us toward. The story we're going to look at today in Numbers 16 is mentioned in the New Testament, and it's mentioned by the Apostle Paul. He says this in 1 Corinthians 10.10. He says, do not grumble as some of them did, and they were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened as, an ex as examples and were written down as warnings for us 
on whom the culmination of the ages has come. And see what we see Paul does here, directed by the Spirit of God, is he gives us a command. It's not a suggestion, it's not an idea, it's not a life hack. It's a command, as clear as any in the Scripture, that we are called to not grumble, to not complain. And if we want to grow spiritually, what do we do? We listen to God and we do what he says. So we're not supposed to grumble and we're not supposed to complain. And then Paul tells us that the story we're about to go through this morning is given to us for two reasons. The first you'll see in verse 11 is it's an example to us, meaning we're supposed to look at it and we're supposed to learn from this story. But then he says it's written down as a warning for us to understand the seriousness of grumbling and complaining, to understand that when you grumble and complain, whether about big things or little things in your life, it's not neutral, it's not harmless, it has an impact on your life, and it has an impact on your faith. This morning I want to offer you seven observations about grumbling and complaining. Seven observations from this story in number 16 that we'll look at together. And seven observations I hope serve as an example and as a warning for all of us as we move forward. Number 16, one says this. It says, Korah, son of Ishar, the son of Korath and the son of Levi, and certain Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, became insolent. And they rose up against Moses. With them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. Now, sometimes when we read the scriptures, what we'll see is a list of names. And the way those names are listed can be confusing to us because it seems like there's 12 names coming out here. But there's really only three individuals it's talking about. It's Korah, it's Dathan, and it's Abiram. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram are the core of the story. They're the three main characters who are going to rise up against Moses who are going to challenge his leadership. They become disaffected and grumbling and angry. They're upset. They become insolent, it says, and they rise up against him. But then it's important to notice here in verse 2, it says that they bring 250 people with them. They've rallied people around them who are also upset, who are also grumbling, who are also complaining. They've gathered around them a group of people, and the only thing these 253 people have in common is that they are grumbling and they are complaining against Moses. See, one of the things you need to be aware of when it comes to grumbling and complaining is that grumbling and complaining is one of the easiest ways to draw a crowd. It's one of the easiest ways to make a connection, but it's also one of the most shallow ways to draw true relationships. See, the first of seven observations I want to make is that grumbling and complaining create cheap and shallow relationships. I want to observe that if you want to connect with someone really quickly, just start complaining about something. You start complaining about something, and you'll find very soon enough, someone else is mad about that thing too. And you complain with them, and you can form a relationship there. You want to get a big crowd going? Just stand in the middle of a busy square and say, I'm upset about things in the world, and see if anyone else is as well. You, you know, you can build actually a large church that way. You can just gather people together and complain about everything in the world, and rail against everything going on, grumble against everything, and rally people together who are also upset about those things. But ultimately, when you build relationships, friendships, marriages, small groups, any kind of ministry team around just being grumbling and angry against the rest of the world, those are not relationships that are deep and meaningful. They are cheap and they are shallow. It's like what so many college freshmen experience when they go off to college for the first time. They go off to college, they're 18 years old, they leave behind their friends and their family, they go to a new city, they're completely alone. I can't tell me how many young men and women I've just talked to who just struggle with that first time in college. They're trying to figure out who their friends are. 
And what very quickly happens is there's something that people can bond around, something that is cheap, something that is shallow, and that is the partying and the drinking culture that happens at so many universities. And so what happens is people get drawn into that and they start to build their friendship around the consumption of alcohol. And those friendships form quickly. And so if you don't participate in it, it's easy to look at that and think everyone else has friends, but I don't. But you watch those same friendships crumble quickly because when you build friendships around things that don't actually matter or when you build friendships around things that are toxic and unhealthy, you will ultimately not build deep, meaningful friendships. You'll build shallow ones. See, the observation here is that relationships built on toxic things are shallow and do not last. If your relationships are primarily built around you being critical, uh, around you grumbling, around you complaining, if your entire small group, you just get together and all you do is complain about the world or complain about other things in this life, if a friendship you have is just you getting together with someone else to vent about all the things that are wrong with your life or wrong with your company or wrong with your boss, that is a shallow relationship that will not last. But on the other hand, relationships built around healthy things are deep and long-lasting. They last a lifetime. They last because they're built on something meaningful. It's the difference between the relationship that's built around a bunch of people venting about how hard it is in this economy versus a group of people who get around and talk about how to properly build a business and a life in the midst of it. It's the difference between people who get around to vent about how hard parenting is and how difficult it is with kids and how difficult it is in this culture. Versus parents who get together to encourage each other and build each other up. See, when you build around something that is good and healthy and right, you will have deep, long-lasting, meaningful relationships and friendships in your life. But you need to be aware of the temptation to be drawn into a relationship where the primary thing you do is complain and grumble. This is true if you work at a school or work in a business or an organization of any kind. It's true with colleagues and friends. It's true in a church. Beware of the relationship that is built primarily or exclusively, around complaints. It goes on this way in verse 3 here. It says, They came, this is the 253 of them, to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourself above the Lord's assembly? So Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and their 250 friends go up before Moses and Aaron, and they challenge them. And the quick summary of their challenge is simply this. Who put you in charge? Who said you get to lead us? And the answer to that question turns out to be a pretty simple answer. God put them in charge. The Lord told Moses to lead them. The Lord tells Moses in Exodus, he says, you will lead my people out of Egypt. You will lead my covenant holy people, the Israelites. So ultimately what we see here is a complaint that these 253 men have against Moses and Aaron. And their complaint is, who says you should be in charge? And the answer is, God has ordained it. God has called for it. God has made it so. And for so many of us, that's actually the heart of our grumbling and complaining in this life. That we look at people who are put in charge. We look at the authority that exists in our life. We look at the people who are in charge in our area, in our life, in our government, in our world, in our businesses. And we grumble and we complain against it. So here's the second observation I want to make that grumbling and complaining often come from a disregard for rightful authority. Rightful authority is a concept we see in the Bible. If you want to know the Bible, you'll read through, and what you'll find is that God puts people in charge of various things. God puts people in charge in governments. God puts people in charge in the church. God puts people in charge in the home. 
God puts people in charge of organizations and businesses and companies and schools. There is a rightful authority that God has created over all of us. And the ultimate rightful authority over all of our lives, no matter where we are, is God himself. God is the rightful authority over all of us. We are ultimately called to listen to him, to obey him, because he is in charge of all things. And the human spirit rebels against this. There is something inside of you and something inside of me that rebels against the idea that God has actually put people in charge of our lives and us recognizing and honoring and submitting to that is a good thing, a healthy thing. Like I'll put it this way. One of of the things I love about having young kids is that young kids will often say the thing we wish we could say but can't say. And so I got my son Noah, he's about to turn four, a three-year-old little boy, he's an amazing kid, he listens to his mom and dad really well, he's great, but from time to time, he's a three-year-old boy. And so sometimes he'll want to do one thing, we'll say, actually, no, buddy, we're going to go do this, we're going to do this thing over here. And, and I love this line he says, and he said it enough that I actually get to quote him on it now. He will, he will hold his, he will curl up his fists, and he will hold his arms like this, he will stomp his foot, and he'll go, I want to do what I want to do. And I look at him and I go, buddy, I totally understand. Because we as adults want the same thing. We are more sophisticated. We have better ways of saying it. But you and I want to do what I want to do. And that's how we operate in this life. I want to do what I want to do. So if you're working somewhere and the boss makes a decision and you don't like the decision, whatever the case may be, you are ultimately saying, I want to do what I want to do. If you're part of a family and some things are getting decided and you don't like how that's happening, your ultimate complaint is that you want to do what you want to do. Even as the teaching pastor here at Calvary, I don't just get to get up here on stage and say whatever I want, whenever I want. I am part of a leadership structure. And God has ordained that our church would be led by elders. This group who oversees the direction, the theology, uh, and the strategy of our church. So I don't just get to do whatever I want to do. I live my life in submission to those who are in rightful authority over me, and all of us are called to do the same in whatever sphere of life we're in. See, when we refuse to submit to the rightful authority above us, that's when we begin to grumble and complain. We begin to grumble and complain because like my son, you and I want to do what we want to do. And yet if we're going to be a Christian, If we are going to be a Bible-believing people, we are going to have to believe that rightful authority is a good, right thing that we submit to. We don't just fight against all the time. See, I think this is one of the challenges of being a Christian, but also an American. An American Christian living in the 21st century has this tension. And here's the tension. Um, As Americans, we really like the idea of freedom and autonomy. I think it comes from our founding, right? There was another nation who wanted to rule over us, and we're like, nope, I want to do what I want to do. And we broke away. And that's part of what it means to be an American, to have this freedom, this independence. And there's some good, right things that can be brought from that, but we need to be careful not to be more American than Christian. Because the American says, I get to do what I want to do. I'm free to do whatever I want. And the Christian says, I am free to do whatever I want under the authority that God has rightly placed over me. That's what it means to be a Bible-believing Christian when it comes to the authority over us, that we recognize it, and we don't constantly kick and rebel and hate the rightful authority God has put over us. This is where grumbling and complaining often come from. We want to do what we want to do. Verse 4 says, When Moses heard this, he fell face down. And he said to Korah and his followers, In the morning the Lord will show you who belongs to him and who is holy, and he will have that person come near to him. 
The man he chooses, we will cause to come near to him. You, Korah, and all your followers do this. Take censers, and tomorrow put burning coals and incense in them before the Lord. The man the Lord chooses will be the one who is holy. You Levites have gone too far. Verse 8, Moses said to Korah, Now listen, you Levites. Isn't it enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the Israelite community and brought you near to himself to do the work at the Lord's tabernacle, to stand before the community and minister to them? He has brought you and you and your fellow Levites near to himself, and now you are trying to get the priesthood too. Now something's going on in this story that if you're not familiar with how the Old Testament works, you might miss. In the Old Testament, you have the nation of Israel, and they're divided up not into states like our nation, but into tribes. There's 12 tribes of Israel, 12 ancestral tribes that allow them to be differentiated from each other. And what it says here is that Korah is part of the Levite tribe. He is part of the tribe of Levi. Now, the Levites had a very special role in Israel. They were not the priests who would go into the temple or into the tabernacle, but they were almost like a support staff around the priests. They got to be a part of a very special thing that God was doing. They had a unique role. They had a special role. They had an honored role in the Israelite community. That's why in verse 9, Moses says, Isn't it enough that the God of Israel has separated you out? He's given you an amazing role. But then in verse 10, Moses puts his finger on the real problem. He says, But now you're trying to get the priesthood too. In other words, Korah, as a Levite, had an amazing role in the people of God. And yet he wanted more. It wasn't enough. He had a special role, but he wanted what the priests had. He had a special role, but he wanted what he couldn't have. And when it comes to our grumbling and complaining, just like Korah, I think we all need to recognize what's at play. What was at play for Korah is at play for us too, that grumbling and complaining are often rooted in jealousy. Plain old jealousy. This desire we have to have what we cannot have. We look around the world and we see his car or her job or his success or her family or what she gets or the things they have and we want what we do not have. You can define jealousy this way. Jealousy is the painful awareness that someone else has what you want. They have it, you want it, and that creates a problem in us. And the misdirect for all of us is we all tend to think when we are jealous of someone that the problem is with the person who has what we want. They have the position I want, so my problem is with them. They have the income or the salary or the wealth I want, so my, my issue is with them. They have the family life, the story, the fame, the power, whatever it is that we want, we think our issue is with that person. But I love how Andy Stanley identifies this in his book, Enemies of the Heart. He says, if you are a theist by any definition, if you believe in God, your jealousy issue isn't really, or is really, between you and God. What God did for one, he could have done for you too, but for some reason, he didn't. Your problem isn't with the person who has what you don't. It's with your creator. He owes you. He owes you. See, at the heart of jealousy is this. God gave that to her. Why didn't he give that to me? God gave that to that family. Why doesn't my family get to experience that? They get to go experience these wonderful things. Why don't I get that as well? If God's all-powerful, he could have given it to both of us. See, in the end, when we are jealous, just like Korah here, jealous of the priesthood, jealous of what he doesn't have, when we're jealous at the root of it, it's the thought that God has shorted us. It's that he could have given us more, but he chose not to. He could have given us what they had, but he withheld it from our hands. And when we believe that God has shorted us, there's something else that creeps in, that the root of jealousy is the thought that God owes us. He owes us one. 
He could have given us that thing. He could have given us that life circumstance. He could have given us that person's story, but he didn't. God has shorted us and God owes us. And Moses sniffs this out right away. He sees the jealousy. He sees that he has this painful desire for a thing he can't have. And that's why in verse 11, Moses looks at Korah and says this, it is against the Lord that you and your followers have banded together. See, what Moses gets is what Andy Stanley was teaching here. He understands the principle that jealousy is not about you and me and what we want or what we have, but it's an issue I have before the Lord. So this is where jealousy can lead to grumbling and complaining. When you wish or desire or are jealous, you don't have the life someone else has, grumbling and complaining quickly come in. I think about this as we come up to March and my son's birthday is coming up, but I also think about uh, the year he was born. The year he was born was the year 2020. He was born on March 3rd of 2020. Now, March 3rd of 2020 was an interesting time to have a child. You have a child, you bring them home, you think about their life, and then suddenly the world changes, it's shut down. Everyone has their story. You remember where you are, where you were, what you canceled, what you did, what you didn't do, how life went. But here's what I found myself doing in March of 2020. I I had a three-year-old girl and a zero-year-old boy, and I brought them home, and I found myself grumbling. Like, does anyone get how hard this is? I'm stuck here, I've got no help, I've got no outlet, I'm just stuck here, I got these little kids, this is insane, this is difficult. And I found myself grumbling and complaining about my station. But then I would talk to young single people in our church who were like, are you kidding? You have the best setup. You're married. You have your children. You're all together. What a beautiful thing. They go, I'm single. I am literally not even allowed to go meet other people right now. And so they're grumbling and complaining about that. And so I'm wanting their station. They're wanting my station. And I heard this across the entire map. It's like the one through line of everything that happened in COVID is everyone thought someone else had it better. And that's what leads to our grumbling and complaining that someone else had it better. Therefore, God has shorted me and God owes me. And the only way we overcome that kind of jealousy is the fundamental recognition that God owes us nothing. Nothing. God owes us nothing. We deserve nothing. And yet that same God has given us life. He has given us breath. He has given us his son, Jesus his death and resurrection for our sins. He has given us eternal life, a home with him forevermore, and he has made us a child of God. The God who owes us nothing has actually given us everything. And when I settle into that fault, grumbling and complaining take a nosedive in my life. Because then I recognize that God owes me nothing, yet he's given me everything. What do I have to complain about? Why am I comparing my life? Why am I jealous of what someone else has? God owes me nothing, yet he's given me everything. I want you to see how the story continues in verse 11. It says, who is Aaron that you should grumble against him? And then Moses summoned Dathan and Abiram and the sons of Eliab, but they said, we will not come. Isn't it enough that you've brought us out of this land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? And now you want to lord it over us? Moreover, haven't you brought us into a land, or you haven't brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, or given us an inheritance of fields or vineyards? Do you want to treat these men like slaves? No, we will certainly not come. So they begin to vent against Moses. And Moses is upset with them, and they're upset with Moses. And they say, Moses, here's what happened. You did a thing, Moses, and it frustrated us. And here's the thing you did. You brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey. And you want to almost say like, whoa, pause the story here. What? Let's go back. This is verse right here. Isn't it enough that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey? Just so we know what land they're referring to here, that would be Egypt. That would be slavery. 
That would be being enslaved and oppressed for century upon century upon century by Pharaoh and his people who could kill you at will, kill your children, kill a generation of children who could do anything they want. They owned your body, they owned your life. And here's how they're describing slavery. A land flowing with milk and honey. See, they've created a story. And based on that story, they're complaining. They're going, yeah, the wilderness is bad, but yeah, Egypt was amazing. It was incredible there. See, they've created this whole narrative in their head and they're venting not out of the truth of the situation, but out of a false story they've created. So here's the fourth observation about grumbling. The grumbling and complaining are usually rooted in fiction, not fact. They're rooted in fiction, not fact. See, so much of the grumbling in your life and in mine is rooted in fiction, not fact. It's not that nothing bad ever happens to you. It's not that there's nothing worthy of having negative feelings about in this world. It's that so often when we grumble and complain against people, it's not rooted in what's actually happening. It's rooted in the story we have going in our mind. It's like the husband and wife who get into a fight and she says, well, you will always do this. And he says, you never do this. And counselors will tell you that not using that language is helpful because that's almost never true. That always or never something happens. See, life is complicated and marriage is complicated. And what can happen in the midst of a marriage is you can grumble and complain against the other person because you've got a story where the facts you want are in your mind and the facts that aren't convenient are left out. It's rooted in fiction, not fact. I was thinking about it this way. Recently, uh, I called in to get something fixed. I had to call into a customer service line, which, listen, I'm of the generation that if you can fix it on the internet, you do fix it on the internet. You, you pick up the phone as an absolute last resort, right? But I tried to fix it online. I couldn't fix it online, so I had to get on the phone and call this person, and you don't pick up the phone, and it rings and rings and rings, and then a human being picks up, right? No. You have to go through their phone tree. Hit zero, hit one, hit two, hit star, hit pound, do the hokey pokey, turn around, right? Then, then you come back and you do this and you go through the whole thing and then eventually I get a hold of a person and I talk to them. I said, listen, I tried to get this done online. I'm really frustrated because this is wrong and this needs to be corrected and this has been really a frustrating experience. I've been on the phone on hold for 30 minutes. Can you please help me? Now, I was on speakerphone, I was looking down at my phone, and iPhone does this sneaky thing where they show you how many minutes you've been on the phone. I looked down. I had been on the phone for eight and a half minutes. Eight and a half. And here I am telling this woman, I've been on the phone for 30 minutes. You've taken half an hour of my day. And it wasn't true. My grumbling and complaining was rooted in fiction, not fact. And the same can happen for you. Sometimes the thing you're mad about at your company, the thing you're mad about in that organization or at the school you work at, the thing you're mad about in your family or with your spouse or with your kids is maybe an exaggerated truth, which is what we would call a fiction, a fiction, a story that you're telling ourselves. So what do we need to do? We need to be aware of the story you're telling yourself because the story we typically tell ourselves when something goes wrong in our life is this, I am the hero of the story. I was doing everything right. And then a villain came in and destroyed everything. That's the story we like to tell. I was doing everything right and then she messed up and then he did that bad thing and then they said no and then this didn't come through and they didn't put the check in the mail and this was wrong and everything went wrong. You wanna have a story where you're the good guy and everyone else is the bad guys. And that's an easy way to tell a story of life. It's just not reality. 
It's like this, this fall, I was trying to get my son Noah into football. And so uh, I had to bribe him with some food and eventually he decided to watch a game with me. And the first game he watched with me uh, was San Francisco 49ers versus the Dallas Cowboys. It's an old rivalry. It's gone on for decades now. And, and it's this kind of thing where I was trying to sit him down and I was trying to introduce him to football and you realize it's actually kind of complicated game to explain to a three-year-old. And so I'm trying to explain it. I was like, okay, here's the basics. There's the red team and they're the good guys. And there's the blue team and they're the bad guys. And he goes, okay, and we're rooting for the good guys. I said, we're rooting for the good guys. And the good guys won, but here's the problem. The very next week, we were watching a college football game randomly on a Saturday, and uh, we're watching the game, and suddenly um, Noah looks at me, and he goes, Daddy, which team is the good guys? Which team is the bad guys? I was like, oh, I don't really know. He goes, well, there's the blue team. That's the bad guys. And I was like, I don't know. Do I really hate Louisville that much? Like, I, I don't know. Like, 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 I just thought to myself, like, really, is like that the thing? And so he's got this whole world where there's always a good guy and a bad guy. And you have to realize at some point that works for a three-year-old, but it doesn't work for us as adults because life is complicated. And there is no story where you're just the perfect good guy who's never done anything wrong ever. And the only reason life is hard is because there's bad guys who only do bad things ever. Can I remind you of three things? People are complex. The people in your life who you think are amazing, you think they walk on water, you think they are the greatest. At times they sin, they fall short of the glory of God and they might sin against you. People are complex. The people who you think are the worst, they're evil, they're the enemy, they're awful. Sometimes they do good, noble, beautiful things. People are complex. And when I say people are complex, that includes me and includes you. Number two, stories are complex. The story of what happened in your life is not a simple one. Listen, the story of how it went in your company where you got laid off or fired is not a simple one. The story of your divorce is not a simple one. The story of what happened with your son or what happened with your granddaughter is not a simple story. So what we want to create sometimes in life are these simple, easy stories where there's good guys and bad guys. So we complain about the bad guys, but stories are complex. And finally, situations are complex. The situation you're in right now is complex. There's all sorts of factors, good and bad, inside yourself and outside yourself. And we are so easily prone to complain. When we are the good guys, they are the bad guys, and we just complain about them. That's what happens in this story. Korah has set up that Moses is the bad guy, he's the good guy, and there's nothing else to it. But that's not the actual story that's being told because people, stories, and situations are complex. It goes on this way as the story continues. In verse 15, it says, Then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, Do not accept their offering. I've not taken so much as a donkey from them, for nor have I wronged them. Verse 16, Moses said to Korah, You and your followers are to appear before the Lord tomorrow. You and they and Aaron. Each of you is to take a censer and put incense in it, 250 censers in all, and present it before the Lord. You and Aaron are, uh, you and Aaron are to present censers also. So each of them took his censer, put burning coals and incense in it, and stood before Moses and Aaron at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So there's a gathering happening where God's going to sift out who's right and who's wrong and what's going on here, who should really be in charge. And the number of times in this text it says they're supposed to bring their censers. Now, this is one of these places where if you're not familiar with the Bible, you'll start to import meaning that was never brought into this. I say censor, and you think of people who cut off the free flow of information. That's what you think of. That is not at all what censor means here. A censor is a brass object. It is something you put coals and incense. In. in fact, see this picture here. That's what a censor would look like in a lot of more traditional churches, Orthodox churches. That's not part of our church tradition, but it's a beautiful thing where you would put coals and hot sm uh, smelling spices in there and then it would waft up and the whole thing would smell beautiful, amazing. That's what they're to bring. 250 people are to bring these burning censors before the tent of meeting where God resides. And that's where the showdown begins. In verse 19, it says this, 
when Korah gathered all his followers in opposition to them at the tent, at the entrance of the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord appeared to the entire assembly. And I don't want to blow past that moment. This is a beautiful moment. I don't know what it looked like exactly. I couldn't tell you, but I can tell you that it was mesmerizing, that it was amazing, that it was something you would long to see with your eyes, that the glory of the Lord would appear. This is something I want to see in our lives, in our church. This is what I want to see in our world, that the glory of the Lord would appear to us and we would see him for who he is in all of his power and his might and his goodness. This is how God appears to his people. And it says that Korah and his followers are standing there in opposition. And then it says in verse 20, but the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, separate yourself from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. But Moses and Aaron fell face down and cried out, O God, the God who gives breath to all living things, will you be angry with the entire assembly because of one man? The glory of the Lord shows up. The people are all standing there. They all see it. And I want to show you a contrast between two groups of people. You've got Korah and his rebellion. It says they are standing there in opposition And then you've got Moses and Aaron who see the glory of the Lord and they fall on their face and they humble themselves before the Lord. I think this is a key observation for all of us. It's important for all of us to see this. A group of people who are pridefully standing in opposition to the Lord and a people who humble themselves before the Lord. The people who are grumbling are the prideful ones. The people who are with the Lord are humbling themselves. And this is the fifth observation for this morning. That grumbling and complaining rarely come from humble hearts. They rarely come from a humble heart. It rarely comes from a person who has humbled themselves in the sight of the Lord. Now, how do you know you're speaking to a humble person? How do you know you're being a humble person? When things go wrong, when you have complaints, when there are issues you have with this world, when things don't go the way you want them to go. Well, let me give you two indicators. Number one, prideful people are quick to blame others when there are problems. You will know you are in the presence of a prideful person when every problem in their life seems to be someone else's fault. This person let me down and she didn't do the right thing and they did it wrong and they're bad and they're corrupt and they're bad and they're awful and they're the worst. When you see a person who blames every single thing in their life on someone else, their entire life is just a series of people letting them down, failing them. No one's come around them. No one's been on their side. Everything is someone else's fault. You know you are speaking with a prideful person. But the opposite is also true that humble people consider that they might be part of the problem. It's not that humble people blame themselves fully every time. Sometimes it really is someone else's fault. But you'll know you have a humble boss when something goes wrong at work and they say, listen, I may have led us poorly here or maybe I didn't communicate well. You know you'll have a humble spouse when they say, you know what, the way I spoke to you this morning, I'm not really proud of that, can you forgive me? You know you'll have a humble friend when they come to you and say, hey, you texted me and I didn't really cut back to you, I let you down and I'm really sorry about that. They recognize that they might be part of the problem. See, it's easy for me to grumble and complain when I'm convinced I'm never part of the problem. When I'm convinced I'm never part of the problem, I've never done anything wrong, it is easy for me to grumble. It's easy for me to complain. It's easy for me to look around the world and see how terrible everyone else is. But when I consider that I might actually be part of the problem that's frustrating me right now, it's a lot harder to grumble. It's a lot harder to complain. This is true in my marriage, it's true in my work, it's true with my friends, it's true in our church, it's true in the world. When we recognize we're part of the problem, it gets a lot harder to grumble and complain. Verse 23 goes on this way. It says, And then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the assembly, Move away from the tents of Korah and Dathan and Abiram. Moses got up and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. He warned the assembly, Move back from the tents of these wicked men. Do not touch anything that belongs to them, or you will be swept away because of their sin. 
And they moved down to the tents of Korah and Dathan and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram had come out and were standing with their wives, children and little ones, at the entrance to their tents. And Moses said, this is how you will know that the Lord sent me to do all of these things and that this was not my idea. If these men die a natural death and suffer the fate of all kind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them and they go down alive into the realm of the dead, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. So Moses calls a shot. He says, here's how we're going to decide this. It's not going to happen by vote or how we feel or anything else. The Lord is going to show up. Either these men are going to live into old age and die like everyone else, in which case you can call me a fraud, find a new leader. Or the earth will open up. It'll be a brand new thing you've never seen. It'll swallow these men and everything they own and their families. And then you'll know that the Lord has put me in charge. Verse 31. As soon as he finished saying this, the ground under them split apart. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed all of them and their households. And those associated with Korah together with their possessions. They went down alive into the realm of the dead with everything they owned. The earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. At their cries, all the Israelites around them fled, shouting, the earth is going to swallow us too. And the fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. I told you at the beginning of this sermon that what we see in 1 Corinthians 10 is this is meant to be an example and a warning to us. And it's a warning to us because we need to understand that grumbling and complaining and everything else we've talked about this morning is not a neutral thing. It's not a harmless thing. It ends up harming people around us. You see what happens in this story. People who are just associated with them, their family, their household, everyone is harmed by this. So here's the sixth observation for this morning, that grumbling and complaining always end up harming others. It always ends up harming those you love, those who are around you, It's not neutral, it's not irrelevant, it's not harmless, it is harmful to those around you. I love what James says in James chapter three. He says, likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body and sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. What James is aware of is the words that come out of your mouth are not harmless, they're not meaningless, they're not just simple words, but they have power. And they have the power to give life and to build, but also the power to tear down and set the world ablaze. So could I remind you some things about grumbling and complaining that the Holy Spirit might want to drive home in your heart this morning? Number one, can I remind you if you're married that grumbling and complaining harm your marriage? They harm your marriage, they don't add to it. If your spouse is frustrating you, if you've been fighting, if things haven't been good, grumbling and complaining is not the road toward healing, is not the road toward wholeness, and is not the road toward a happy marriage. Grumbling and complaining against your spouse harms your marriage. If you have children, I want you to know grumbling and complaining harm your children. You see here in this story, Korah and Abiram and Datham have these children and they're little ones and they're all swallowed up in this well as well. It's a warning and example to us that if we are people of grumbling and complaining, that will be passed on to our children and their children after that. Grumbling and complaining harm our children and our grandchildren. Listen, grumbling and complaining harm your colleagues. I know this is the office culture at so many places where you just grumble and complain and you're mad about everything and you just vent about the boss, the company, the policy, the organization, but it's going to ultimately harm the people you work around. You're grumbling and complaining. Grumbling and complaining harm your friendships. Again, if you have a friendship that's primarily built around you venting about all the things you hate about the world or hate about the people around you, it will not last long. It will not benefit them, nor will it benefit you. 
As a church, we need to know grumbling, complaining, harm your church. It harms us as the body of Christ here. That kind of sin, that kind of grumbling, that kind of complaining has an impact upon our church. And finally, grumbling and complaining harm your witness. Your witness before the world. You know, there is a world out there that loves to complain, loves to grumble, loves to point out everything that's wrong. And when they look to the church and see us doing the same, they go, there's nothing different about those people. There's nothing they have that I want. See, for all of us, the call is to know that there is a danger in grumbling and complaining. It's not meaningless. It's not harmless. It's not just words. It is words that have power to destroy. Now, I want to answer a question right now. And the question is a question that may have become top of mind for you during this sermon. And the question I want to phrase basically is this way. What do I do if I have a legitimate concern? I have legitimate concerns. What do I do? Because this sermon kind of sounds like the old thing your mama used to say to you. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. And I'm not teaching that this morning. I'm not teaching you that if you're taking advantage of at work, you should just close your mouth and smile and just be fine with it. I'm not saying that if you are being harmed or abused in your marriage, you shouldn't open up your mouth and speak out against it. I am not here saying that if something has happened to you that has harmed you or damaged you from this church, that you shouldn't say anything. In all of those circumstances and more, you should speak up and you should share your concerns. I want to make a distinction between sharing your concerns with the rightful person versus you being a person who's grumbling and complaining. See, grumbling and complaining are about seizing control. That's what this whole story is about. Datham, Abiram, and Korah, they're seizing control from Moses. They're grumbling and complaining. It's to stir up people to be on their side, to stir up problems, to bring down the rightful authority. And if that's what you're doing, even if the subject and content is right, that's not the way God's called you to do it. See, grumbling and complaining are about seizing control. Sharing concerns are about letting go of control. It's about going to the person who can actually make a difference. So if at work there's something that's going on and it's a legitimate concern and it needs to be shared, you going through the offices just spreading negativity and gossip and drama and criticism and grumbling and complaining, that is not ultimately you going about it the right way. But when you go sit with your boss and tell her or him what's going on, you speak clearly and compassionately and humbly and offer the issue and you put it into their hands that they might take care of it. At that point, that's not grumbling, that's not complaining, That's offering a serious and thoughtful and humble concern. I think there's ways of doing this in our marriage, in our church. There's ways of doing it in your life. There's ways of doing it in your small group or with your friendships. There's ways of doing this in all different places where we approach situations sharing concerns, yes, in thoughtful, humble, considerate ways. But grumbling and complaining, this is always going to be something that becomes an obstacle to us following Jesus. I love how it's said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. It says, do everything without grumbling and arguing. I had a mentor in college once tell me to 214 it. So what does that mean? He goes, stop grumbling and complaining and arguing about everything. Just do what you're called to do. Do what God has asked you to do. And then I love this in verse 15. It says, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault and a warped and crooked generation. Now, one of the things I love about the Bible is the Bible doesn't just tell you to do things and hope you'll figure out why. It tells you why. Notice it says, don't grumble and argue, and then there isn't a period there. It says these words, so that, after the comma. And if you see the word so that in your Bible, you should circle it. You should underline it. You should highlight it. Because it's about to give you the reason for this command. And there are two reasons I see here. Number one, that you might become blameless and pure. That you might become holy. That you might become more like Jesus. That by the power of the Holy Spirit, you might be sanctified and made more godly in your life. The first reason is because we become more sanctified. 
And the second reason here is that you might be blameless and without fault, children of God, in a warped and crooked generation. In other words, what Paul is trying to say here in the book of Philippians is when I'm not grumbling and complaining, I become more holy, I become more like God, but I also become a witness to a world, to a generation of people who know how to complain and don't know what it looks like to live a life without that. I become a witness to the world. See, the seventh and final observation I'll make about grumbling is this, that grumbling and complaining are obstacles to our personal holiness and our public witness. To our personal holiness, us becoming more like Jesus, us living and loving like him, but also to our witness to the world. And our holiness, us becoming more like Jesus, is how we witness to a watching world. There is a world out there who is looking to say, do they have anything we want? Is there anything different here at Calvary with these church people, with these Jesus people? And the answer should be that they look at us and see something different inside of us. I love this from our 2030 Vision magazine as our church leadership thought about where our church is heading by 2030. We said these words, he said, when we think about 2030, we see a day when the holiness of our church raises the curiosity of a watching world. In other words, the people of the world should look at what goes on, look at how people in our church are so much like Jesus, and they should say, I want what they have. I want it. How do I get it? How do I get what they have? And that's gonna mean a lot of things, but it's not gonna mean less than us being a people who choose not to grumble and who choose not to complain, who choose instead to walk in the way of Jesus. Because when we choose to let go of grumbling and complaining, what we do to the world is we testify to the goodness of our God. We testify toward a God who is good and who is holy and who is righteous and who is sovereign and who is worthy of our trust. A people who are constantly grumbling and complaining are not inviting anyone to know that God. A people who are grumbling and complaining are pushing people away. It's like this. So um, imagine if you were to go on a vacation and your family didn't want to do a hotel room. You wanted to do an Airbnb, some sort of house rental. And so what you did was you decided to look up uh, these rentals and you're on the website and you're looking at pictures and it's beautiful. But here's what you and I know. You don't go based on the pictures. You go based on the reviews. So you start reading the reviews. I want you to imagine you see this beautiful house. It's this amazing place. But all the reviews start to say stuff like this. The sheets weren't washed. The kitchen was filthy. Everything was broken. The whole house smelled like fish. Like if that were the case, you would not book that place. Why? Because grumbling and complaining push people away. Grumbling and complaining say there's something wrong here. There's nothing worth you checking out here. The same is true with our grumbling and complaining. When we're grumbling and complaining constantly, the world looks at us and goes, their relationship with their God doesn't seem to actually do anything in their life. But the opposite is also true. You open up an Airbnb, you look at the reviews, you're looking at what they say. They say, I'm so grateful to have stayed here. It was a beautiful place. Everything works great. It was clean. It was lovely. It was beautiful. I'm so grateful. I can't wait to come back. I've already booked a second trip. Here's what you know that's true about that. You would go book that place. Why? Because gratitude and praise pulls people in. And when our mouth is filled not with grumbling and complaining, but rather with gratitude and praise for the goodness of our God, it witnesses to a world that is desperate for a God who is good, who is loving, who is with us, and who is here. Listen, our grumbling and complaining are part of our personal holiness and part of our public witness. And as a church, we want to be a people who learn from the warning and from the example of this story that we might live and love like Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for this morning. Thanks for your word and thanks for the challenge. And God, I'm so aware of the places in my life now that I've grumbled, that I've complained, that I've thought it was harmless, that I've thought it was meaningless. And God, I just once again, I confess it to you. I turn from it, I repent of it, I throw myself upon Jesus. Make me more like him. I pray the same for every man, woman, and child in our congregation. 
I pray that they would know you, that they would trust you, and that your goodness would overflow into their lives, and that grumbling and complaining would not be a part of their lives, that they would be filled with gratitude and filled with praise. And so God, help us to have that kind of gratitude for who you are and what you've done in your son, Jesus. Help us to see your goodness and help that goodness to be on display to a watching world. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for when it challenges us, convicts us, and makes us more like Jesus. And we pray that you would do your good work in our church this morning. We pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.